Hi, this is Roberta, and I'm here today on Art Blog Radio. You're listening to Art Blog Radio. I'm here with Mark Thomas Gibson. Mark is an artist new to Philadelphia, and he is a professor on the faculty of Tyler School of Art at Temple University, painter and a drawing artist. And today we're at Rosenwald Wolf Gallery at University of the Arts, where Mark has a solo show called The Dangerous One. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about The Dangerous One and Mark's journey to Philadelphia. Okay. So Mark, welcome to Philly for starters. Well, thank you so much. How many thank months you. or whatnot have you been here? Or is it a year yet? No, no, not a year yet. We moved here, um, my fiance and I, Katie Gagenheimer, we moved here in August, uh, and we, so we've been here for a, a couple months now, and I love it. It's it's the best choice I've ever made, to be honest. As an no, that, that's really great to hear. No, no, it is true. It's just I find that the city is um, loving, warm, warmer than it you would expect in some ways. There's a little bit of a trash issue, but other than that, <laughs> uh, it's pretty it's pretty amazing place, and it's it reminds me of other cities I've lived in at moments where. The opportunity for artists were very large and ripe and possible, and uh, like what cities, for example? Um, I, I lived in New York during a time when uh, there were still some spaces that you could actually afford, maybe, <laughs> and um, I felt there was a certain kind of openness. I mean, you know, and, I, and that could even just be my perspective of my age, you know, uh, of who I was at the time. But I felt there was a little bit more of an openness and a conversation. I felt there was a little bit more. Uh, this is maybe the early aughts or end of the 90s kind of moment where uh, spaces were a little bit more fluid. And uh, I find that right now things are extremely fluid here and that there's this type of openness and curiosity generally throughout most of the art institutions and with people and an ability just to walk up and say hi. And, and, um, and I see it not just from me. I see it from other artists. I see it from younger artists as well. This is a lot to pick up in less than a year. I want to say you must have been out talking to a lot of people then. And it sounds like you are a people person and you like to talk to people. Oh yeah, I, I try to engage with people as much as possible. I mean, I'm a bit of a loner, reclusey painter type because that's what you kind of have to do. You have to be in the studio working for a uh, time by yourself. But I, I try to, uh, more so now than ever, is to like extend a hand or ask a question or find a person who might be able to tell me a little bit about the history of redlining in uh, you know, Philadelphia or give me a little bit of an understanding around like the politics, the, the economic politics of Philadelphia. It's something that I can't really speak on yet, but it's something I'm, I'm kind of also investigating right now. Well, let's talk then, let's turn to your art. Mm -hmm. The show here at Rosenwald Wolf, which is really a wow, the walls are painted black mm -hmm. for people that haven't been here yet, and I want to say you should get over here and see it. It's up until March 13th, I believe. Yes. I'm sorry, March 8th. Is it March 8th? Okay. Mar well, that's what it says on the web. Okay, it's March 8th. Yeah, it could be. Um, I can double check. <laughs> you can add, it can amend. All right, we yeah. can amend, yes. Uh -huh. So anyway, the walls are painted black. On the walls are enormous, I mean, very wall-sized drawings mm -hmm. on paper that are in ink. Mm -hmm. Calligraphic, you spoke earlier. You shed some light on your childhood and said your mother was good with calligraphy. Yeah, my mother has a really beautiful drawing hand and kind of a freedom to her writing. And I, I actually, I can't duplicate it. I've tried. I try all the time, actually. And... Um, 
the fluidity. I think she because she went to Catholic Catholic oh, school. Oh yes, penmanship was e big. Exactly, and they forced that, and that was for me as well. But I was never quite as good as her. And uh, right now, I think for me, the ink I use, I use Sumi ink brushes. I use things that kind of allow for the the wrist and the elbow and the shoulder to also be activated when making a mark. So I, I do look towards uh, those kind of traditions, and when I'm working on a drawing. Speaking of traditions, your subject matter seems to be historical. Mm -hmm. You've got George Washington crossing the Delaware. Mm -hmm. I should explain they're not representational images. They've been imbued with your own spirit of history mm -hmm. and they speak a lot to present time as well mm -hmm. as to the historical moment. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got Revolutionary War soldiers and fifers and drummers. And then there's a hat that says, it's on the ground, mm -hmm. make America hate yeah. again. So there's a, history is a big part, I think, mm -hmm. of what your thoughts are, yeah. perhaps. But there's also more. It's more about the history coming into the present time. Yes. I, I think history I'll, repeating itself, Yes, history, exactly. I mean, history repeating itself, um, things becoming evident and self-evident over and over and over again. And uh, some people, some bodies, some individuals are a little bit more aware, a little bit more sensitive to that information. And um, and I think, you know, I know it's kind of, I think the type of representation, the way I think about history was something that I argued against or I fought against for a very long time because I felt it was a little bit too easy or a little too didactic um, to kind of describe like the, the large field of issues that are kind of occurring now and have occurred for, since the beginning or the inception of this country and, and probably every country prior to it. But, uh, you know, the, the Make America Hate Again thing, it's something that my father, he says a lot. Um, that Trump did, and I, you know, it's something that you hear people say, but to hear it from him in particular, and that he says it in a way in which I can kind of almost hear it created the type of repetitive a trauma, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's like when he says it, he says it exactly the same way every time. Mm. And it's like that kind of thing where with trauma, and you kind of are dealing with someone even talking through trauma, how they tend to like take you to that thing. They take you to that place. They take you to that moment of rupture. And looking at the hat and then juxtaposing it with a Confederate hat on one side and then that hat on the other side and the idea of how people still um, use certain signs and symbols to indicate their political view, their personal views, um, and how everyone is supposed to then receive you after that point, after you've given that information to someone. So a lot of um, the ideas around symbols and the way that we think about history and even taking history painting or taking um, certain elements of history and then reinterpreting them is to kind of characterize them uh, using caricature to, uh, to elevate or to uh, examine specifically what is at stake in those images and how do people then um, identify themselves with those images. And that, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Can you say what the dangerous one mm -hmm. refers to? The dangerous one, it was sort of, it kind. It started off, I guess, thinking about uh, a lot of the language that was happening during the time of me making the show around November, around the election, on the idea of the caravan, the idea of um, bodies coming into the space that were coming to do harm. Um, not oh, the immigrant caravan yeah, the, yeah, the coming through yeah, Mexico. Yeah, yeah, the caravan that's been going on forever, that now it's all of a sudden it's an issue. 
the idea that there was this kind of pointing a finger and, and saying that one over there is the dangerous one or that one over there is the threat, though if you look at the numbers and, and all the statistics, that is actually inaccurate, but being able to call that out was the beginning of it and, and kind of trying to think about how do I frame the conversation or turn it back on to the, the voice that is doing the finger pointing, you know, um, one finger pointing out and three pointing back and, you know, how, how do I examine that? And one way I started thinking about it was about humor and I was thinking about like the idea of like the one or that story or that, um, that analogy or that anecdote that we all kind of know and how do I tell it? How do I tell that one? How do I tell that story? How do I offer it um, from my voice and my perspective? Well, it seems to me that's, that's really, thank you for that description. That was beautiful. Um, when I look at your works, they're very full of movement, unlike the great master works, quote unquote, that they're mm -hmm. based on mm -hmm. in many cases. Mm -hmm. And you've activated them in a way that makes me feel like, I don't know, there's something dangerous in them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that getting to your point of who is the dangerous one. Mm -hmm. So you're portraying history as a dangerous past that we've had. Yeah. That people like to forget about or cover up with cosmetic, yeah. you know. Language or physical cosmetics or like uh, architecture, uh, tearing down a street, building a new building in its place, giving it archways and making it seem like it's been there forever. That's and right, heroic statuary. Exactly. You know, and, and you know, from the start of this country, uh, in painting and other forms and writing, that, that's been present. Um, something that you said a few minutes ago, and it actually made me think about when you're talking about the movement and the paintings. I sometimes I dance a little bit when I paint or, or draw, and I talk about it, and and sometimes in my talk about that Benjamin West piece, uh, "Death on a Pale Horse," that's over at um, Paffa. And actually, there's a horse in the back that's actually taken from that that horse that Death is riding on. And uh, I usually talk about how in that painting, when you're actually in front of it, you can kind of see the underpainting, and it's very loose, and it's very open. And how this person is painting at near the end of his life and getting these kind of large strokes and these large movements through because he's kind of doing something epic. He's kind of calling up something that he isn't maybe comfortable with, but yet he can see in his mind's eye. And uh, I think so when I'm kind of attempting to make these works, I get into that zone of thinking about the extension of myself, my extension of my body, and also I am thinking about painting and layering, um, layering front to back, but also side to side. And so when you look at a drawing or one of these drawings long enough, you might find other characters, you might find other people, you might find other relationships and other things. So that there's like kind of multiple parallel stories or histories kind of occurring all at the same time. Yes, yeah. there are. There are a lot of those multiple parallel histories happening in each one of your works. Mm -hmm. um, which makes me think, and I'll ask the question, did you, maybe you still do make comics? Do you have a sketchbook where you're yeah. sketching out ideas and panels? And um, It's weird because I always tell my students, like, you always have your sketchbook with you, you don't know where your idea is going to be. And I was raised because of um, my background in art school that I had teachers who used to be extremely severe about that. So I do typically have a sketchbook. I actually have my little uh, moleskin that I carry around that I jot down notes and images. And, and it's really helpful because um, 
it's one thing to write it down, but it's another thing to go back and look at it. <laughs> and so you have to remember to do that step. <clears throat> and, I, and I do that now. I, I kind of go back and then I find that my, I'm already having the conversation, that I'm already kind of engaged with this subject. And it, it, it causes little um, flashpoints for me to where I can return back to the idea and return back to some of the emotions or some of the thoughts and then maybe even the, the writing or the, the book I need to look at, the film I need to look at, the painting I need to look at, and then I can use it to get more into the zone of making. So yes, I do. Um, drawing is like the base of everything that I do. Um, painting, no matter what it is, if it's any project I do, I'm thinking about drawing in relationship to it. So, <clears throat> Talk about emotion for a minute, because there is a lot of emotion in your works. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be, I don't want to say filtered, but it comes through a lens of analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I, that's a hard balance to have, but yeah. I think you've achieved it. There's both raw emotion mm -hmm. and analysis going on. Mm -hmm. But I think as I get older, I was having a conversation with someone about this earlier today about age and energy and like conservation of energy and I think I used to walk around with my feelings a lot more open or on my face like people would walk up to me like are you okay <laughs> and because I, I was just in my processing like stuff and processing feelings and um, but I, I think as I've gotten older I've been able to think about healthy ways to, I don't know, compartmentalize, sorry, I'm saying that word probably wrong, um, like some of the thoughts and some of the feelings and knowing when to reaccess them or like in Dune as a kid, I remember watching that and there's a whole thing, you know, like fear is the mind killer and um, I think about that a lot and how fear operates within groups of people and also in my own life and trying to be able to like turn or think about that as the storm and like turning into the storm. So turning into the emotions, um, analyzing them, uh, emotions aren't facts, feelings aren't facts. I do believe that personally, but they are strong indicators of reality. So I try to be present with them. And so when making the work, certain feelings and certain emotions come up and then a part of it is trying to figure out how to master some of those th feelings and those, those things and not let them just become um, a blurted out section in a piece of work and, and just disrupt the whole thing. It's about like um, the balance, uh, the harmony and the rhythm between those two things and knowing when to go free expression and then knowing when to like come back to the, the main beat or the rhythm of the image. And, you know. That's hard to know though. That takes a lot of time making mistakes and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correcting and making more mistakes and correcting. I, I draw a lot, you know. I draw a lot, and and you know, and, and I think that actually one thing I was doing for the show was that I had uh, a pen I bought that had this really bad, um, overly expensive, supposed to be like a, an ink pen, a dip pen, mm -hmm. but it didn't actually operate correctly, so it would um, it would dry out almost like when you're making a line like halfway through. <sighs> But Terrible. It, but it was perfect because what it did, it, it's like I couldn't be elegant. I couldn't do the things I know to do. I had to fight for the line. I had to fight for the portrayal. I had to fight for the image. So then all of a sudden I'm in this thing about like editing and, and, and can't edit and like it's self-editing and it's, I don't know, it was something about it that it, 
it, it, it made these little drawings I was making so much stronger and I could see certain things against myself. And um, on the third time you're trying to make a line, you know you want to make that line <laughs> or something, you know? Or, yeah, yeah, sure. And, and, and then it doesn't even come out the way you wanted it to. And so you move on. And so then the image starts to build in a different way and space builds in a separate way. And eventually I started to like see that these drawings that I was making were maybe not the drawings that were going to be the big works, but they were actually helping me like accept failure, accept, I think drawing for me in the way I work with ink, it's all been about learning how to accept failure. Because when I was a kid, I would totally take a piece of paper, I'd start to draw something like, you know, the Ghostbusters or something, or like, you know, Ecto-1, and I would start drawing a tire and be like, no, it's not a good circle, flip the page. No, it's not a good circle, flip the page. No, it's not a good circle, flip the page. And eventually you learn maybe you can erase or maybe you can draw lighter and then erase and then <laughs> so you learn and so like yeah I love that about drawing I love drawing it's so the immediacy of it and, and, and working with students and seeing them draw and it's almost like you hear someone sing and they can't hear their own feelings but you can hear everything wow you know it's beautiful stuff so, but you don't go uh, with pencil on your large drawings, I do, do you? I do, but I use like, a, <laughs> I use a, uh, a mechanical pencil with a 4-H lead, mm. but it's, so it's really, really thin, yeah, thin. but when I, with a 5-millimeter. Yeah, but when I'm doing it, I'm drawing and I draw very loose versions of things. So faces, objects, clothing, that, that isn't usually there. It's usually like I might plot a line for horizon. Um, I might give myself, I, I talk about it like it's a dance floor and I just try to make a good dance floor mm. and, and try to make sure that it can handle what I'm gonna do next to it. So then after that point, then I can just dance. I can just sing, I can just move, you know? So I wanna know what music you listen to when you're dancing in front of, and drawing. I listen to like hip hop, I listen to jazz. I listen to like, you know, modern stuff the kids are making and they're doing that I don't maybe understand fully. Um, I listen to metal, I listen to lots of speed metal, I listen to uh, podcasts. You're a music lover. No, I'm not actually, I'm completely tone deaf. I, I can't hold a note nor can I produce one. I How just, about an instrument? None, none whatsoever. I have horrible sense of rhythm, I can't dance for anything. Uh, I can't drum a beat, I can't do any of it. I, I like bass notes, I like the feeling that certain songs give me. Music will take me back to memories and to places very quickly. Um, so if I want to get to certain feelings or emotions, sometimes there's a song that I know hits me there. Like the, the last like 15, 20 minutes of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony mm. always makes me like calm. Even though it's very like up and you know, low to joy part and everything else, it just like levels me out. And so I, and, and that became uh, possible because I would listen to it when I would go to the Met on Sunday mornings when they would open up, or like during the week, so when no one's there. You conditioned yourself yeah. to associate Beethoven's Ninth with art. Yeah, art and calm. You know, like uh, when I was in, I got to go to the Louvre and I was in the, uh, it was a wall <laughs> of Rubens, a room of Rubens. And I walk in and the Ode to Joy part hits like, bam, like as soon as I walk inside of it. And I just start crying, like I'm tearing up, 
and I'm just like feeling it, and I'm just like, oh my god, oh my god, these paintings, oh my god, he painted so much of them, oh my god, there's all these weird jokes and strange things he's putting inside of them, and um, I'm feeling all that, and also I know I'm, I'm creating that moment that I can return to, you know, and so I don't listen to it all the time, I listen to it when I need to, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the way it kind of works, and it surprises me when certain things I didn't know I had kind of created that track for myself so I usually listen to something um, from my high school years that makes me think about being in my bedroom <coughs> painting and I usually listen to that right before I go to an opening and that kind of makes me remember and gives me some sense of gratitude about like where I came from and where I'm at now so I can take myself back to being in that room going like Will I ever get out of Miami? Am I always going to be in this room? Like, you know, to being like, oh, I'm here. I arrived. I'm on the other side of that, you know? Lots of happening in between, but I'm here. So how about the tempo of the song? Is that maybe what you're getting at? Yeah. And how that affects the... Yes. The, does it affect the actual drawing itself? Uh-huh. Like the, how big they are? It used, to, it used to more, and now it doesn't. And I don't know what that is. It used to more. It used to feel like if I listened to like Metallica, Battery, or something like that, it would just be like, okay, I'm in, or like, you know, High on Fire, like stuff like that. If I listened to something that was like really like ready to go, I'd be psyched. And maybe some of those things got burnt out in me a bit, but um, actually, like, it's something now where as soon as I just have the headphones on and I'm actually not listening to anything. Yeah. You you putting the headphones on and not listening. Yeah, that was wow. weird this okay. time around. There was like uh, some of them back there, uh-huh. uh, like the one with the the Klux kettle, the one that Clint mm-hmm. remembers, and the, like that was like four hours of not listening to anything. But with the earphones on, yeah. so you're in your head, yeah, basically. And I'm just like dancing, you know. Very cool. So um, to switch it very drastically. Sure. What do you uh, think about, you teach a lot of students, you've been a teacher of students, you taught at Yale, you teach at Tyler now, you taught at SVA, I believe, yeah. in New York, too. Um, Rutgers. Oh, other places, Cooper Rutgers. Union. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, um, what is the role, and what do you tell your students is the role of the artist today in society? You seem to have... I mean, you used the word didactic before. Mm-hmm. I don't see these as didactic. They <laughs> well, are a little. But well, but that's like, yeah, that, that, that's the, the, that is sometimes, I think, knowing what could be didactic about them and then trying to weaponize it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a little bit, I think the role of artists today is, is, could be a complicated one depending on who you are, right? Yeah. So I, I think what I used to do as a teacher was that I had very strong teachers when I was growing up who are very clear and into defining what an artist is and trying to make you become that person. As time has moved forward, I have found myself listening more to them than I do than I expect them to listen to me. So I was saying to a student the other day, I was saying, wow, you're really doing great in this. I have this student teaching this class, Art of the Graphic Novel, and, um, and this kid's doing much better than he was before. And I said to him, like, uh, you're doing really great in here. And, and he's like, well, is it okay if I can be honest? And I'm like, yeah, always, go ahead. He's like, I wasn't trying that hard because, you know, you didn't really, like, 
you weren't really being hard on anyone in the last class, so I just didn't like, you know, push it. And I was like, well, that's not my job, you know? Like, my job, you have to push it. It's your work, it's your hand, you know? Like, life is a leveler. You know, either get down or lay down, or like, it will take care of you. So if you don't put forth the effort, then you can't expect anything from it. So I can't give you that. You know, if you, so now if you up your game, then we have another conversation, and I'll meet you there every time. But if you don't show up, then I don't have to show up. Then we're good. You know, like, I'll pass you even maybe, because that's just your life. That's what you're choosing to do with yourself. Art is a self activated thing in, in so many ways, and it should be. And I, I think sometimes we lose sight of that, or we start to play in certain roles that aren't realistic or not a part of reality where we think that we are doing something by playing those roles, but no, it's like, I'm so much more invested and interested when I see a student turn that corner or learn that thing or figure that thing out. And then they are like asking for more and then all of a sudden the debate starts, like that's, that's the good stuff. You can plant some seeds, will they take fruit? Yeah, but like sometimes they do and then you get to harvest it, right? And not all kids have that turnaround. Yeah, it may not happen in your time. And so you can't give up on them either. You have to kind of like allow them to be and then step away. You know, yeah, sure. Yeah, you step away and then you see. And then sometimes five, ten years down the line, you see them again and they're like, they got it. And they may not even be an artist. They might be somewhere else in their life. And that's what actually is most important is that they maybe got something and they're good. And they're good with who they are. And that, that's enough. That's awesome. That feels great. I am going to say this, and I want you to react. Sure. I think you're an optimist. Yes, I am. I think I had to come to terms with that. I had a friend, my friend Matt Jones, I think it was, one day I was in a studio and we were talking and stuff like that, and he said, you know, you're actually an optimist. You're not a pessimist. And I'm like, eh. And then, <laughs> and then afterwards I had to think about it, and actually I felt great about that because I do think the light, you know, arc of history is moving towards light. You just have to get through a lot of crap. And just that's the way it works. And we fight for it. And every generation has to fight for it. And that's the way it works. Every generation has fought for some more ground. And every generation on the other side fights to take some of that ground. So we have to figure out ways in which we engage in that fight. And to try to fight the good fight. And some days we win and some days we lose. But the fight is a continual thing. Nothing is ever, if everything's ephemeral, nothing ever stays static. Or if anything is static or stays um, still, I mean, then uh, it, it, it dies. Nobody Maintain, you moves, know. nobody gets anything. Agitation is necessary for growth, you know? And so, game on. And that's how we have to kind of engage with the reality. At least I do. That's what keeps me getting up, you know? Do you play video games? Hell yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite at the moment? I know it probably uh, changes from oh, gosh. year to year. No, no, no. There's one. Okay, so we actually got an old, the one of those Super Nintendo things, mm -hmm. you know, those mods. So I've been going back and playing uh, Super Mario World because I was playing like these first person shooter games and it would just leave me edgy and feeling all like, and with no resolution, win or lose, it didn't matter. And then Mario just trying to jump over something and get through the level, you know, and there's a little timer going. And it takes you back, and I think it's the muscle memory in my hands also that kind of connects me back to that space. I found myself, actually, I used to be a very competitive game player, and I found myself becoming less and less competitive in games. And 
I didn't know what that was. I started playing Mario Brothers, and I started feeling competitive again, but yet in a much more, almost with myself, but in a playful way, in a fun way. I don't know, it just was awesome. Like actually, I, I took the cord from my um, SNES and it's in my, in my office. So I was gonna leave here and like uh, go grab it before I went home because I figured I was gonna play tonight. Yeah. That's a good strategy. What do you think about Minecraft? Do you play that? I've never engaged in that. My niece does. She Minecrafts. I've heard things about it. I've never even like gone online and, and introduced myself to it. Uh, I guess I play D&D with friends. Um, I, I think I have a tendency to get distracted in other people's fantasies, perhaps. So I need things that have clear boundaries of time, almost. Because I could, when I was really young, in my early 20s, first of time after 9-11, it was really hard to find work, and we're all underemployed. And uh, me and my friend, uh, Justin Blishy, we sat around and we played like Final Fantasy, one of the Final Fantasy games. We played it for two weeks straight, and we just took turns back and forth playing, you know, and one person would go to the restroom or cook food for the other person, and, and we just played it, man. We just played it all the way through. Never you were could, in New York for I was in. I was in New York, yeah, I was there for that. But um, after we, we played the whole game, it was something that I immersed myself in with another person, and it was something that I always kind of imagined I would have loved to do when I was like, you know, 10 or 12 years old. And I got it, and I did it. So, good. Okay, move on, you know. It's like, I don't have to do that every day now. So, move on. Have you ever collaborated in your art practice? Final question. Um, final question. Uh, no, but I'm looking forward to maybe trying it. I think I can do that maybe more now than before. I do think I collaborate with um, my, my fiance in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I do. I think I do. I think I actually am a kind of an odd collaborator in my practice. And I disregard guess, that bell. Disregard the bell. But um, yeah, I am a collaborator in some ways in my practice, and I can't help but think that I'm collaborating with the world around me in some way. Oh, for sure. Well, on that note, that's a wonderful note to end on. Sure. Thank you, Mark Thomas Gibson. It's been a pleasure. No, and thank you, and thank you for reaching out and asking me to do this. Also, I want to say thank you to Sid Sachs here um, at UArts, at the Rosenwald Gallery, and, and Michael Servo, who over there, who really helped this happen. Uh, this has been an amazing opportunity. Uh, these are amazing people to work with, and um, I love them dearly. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again. Well, thank you, and I would love to speak to you again as well.